0: As you know the life apps is a really interesting you know kind of way of at least we the way we presented it we're trying to engage technology and faith we're trying to grapple with what it means to sort of have a real world sense of where things are at a technological level at the same time we want to say okay well how does our our life in Jesus interface with that and um, I was you know this last New Year's I was reading a whole bunch of things um, that had to do with technology because so many of the projections, so much of the discussion is built around technology. And that really is a characteristic of this time that we're living in. It's just stunning. It's comprehensive. It's it's making things normalized that would have seemed incredible and almost um, like science, science fiction in previous generations, just part of our everyday life. But I was reading an article, and people are more and more talking about this because they're, they're noting— I'll just kind of use this as a bit of an introduction— they're noting that people are getting more and more kind of um, invasive with the technology. Like, we, we, we're having to rework our sort of social mores and how we engage. And so this article was having fun with it. It was given at the beginning of the year. It was called The Well-Mannered Technophile. And uh, it was essentially advice for all of us. And were having, it was having fun. It was talking about different things that go on and uh, how we might think about it. So I want to have a little fun together and just listen to some of the things that the article highlighted. It says, look, starting this year, when we're talking about the Well-Mannered Technophile, how about let's do this? Um, and this is something that i by the way, affects my life directly because I have a wife who when we go out and go out together one of the things she's trained me to do you know (laughs) so so we will we have this little habit we will we'll we'll pray together which we do and then um, we try to do that in just a very non-nondescript but but sincere way just because it's part of how we want to live our lives and um, so we'll it together, and then the meal comes, you know, right before we start eating. I'm, I now know the ritual. I'm supposed to stop, right, and pose over the food because I'm not allowed to eat until the shot is taken. And so I've been trained. All right. So, and then, so here's the, this is the well-mannered technophile, one of the suggestions. Only one food Instagram per day. Sorry. That's the only way to ensure that as a country, our omelets are not getting cold. So this whole idea of only one per time, that was going to hit home for me. Now, the other one is this. Here's another one. You know, a lot of people know about the the Apple watch that's kind of coming out and um, wristwatch. And people are talking about how that's going to revolutionize things. And only certain people who have access to it can wear it but it's going to it's going to come there's a lot of other smartphone you know smart watches that are out there right now anyway this this is one of the early Apple Watch owners yes you are the proud owners of the wearable that will make wearables go mainstream but don't act like you're better than the rest of us because you can order pizza by talking into your wrist or all smartphone owners smart watch owners no messaging during dinner and pretending that you're just scratching your wrist, you know, wrists aren't that itchy, okay? Okay, here's one. This one I actually just saw. You may hear something, you you may hear about something called a selfie stick. Now that, that is a, yeah, that is a telephoning pole Alright, this is like a telescoping pole with an attachment for a camera or a smartphone to allow photographers to get more of themselves into the frame. And it's okay to use one, but do know that you will be labeled as that stupid tourist with the selfie stick. <laughs> Alright, it's inappropriate, and this is also his home uh, for me, uh, because of who I married. That's all I'll say about that. It is inappropriate to make fun of someone for using a ginormous phone. Like the iPhone 6 Plus or the Samsung Galaxy Note 4. That moment of making fun has passed. Phablets are here to stay. Also, if you put your phone on vibrate, it must remain in your pocket. Because if it's on the table, it will cause a tremor that will register on the Richter scale. And this is more annoying than a Miley Cyrus ringtone. And then one from um, Andy Dunn, who's the CEO of Bonobos, a fashion retailer. He says this, my, my mom says I'm on my phone way too much. On the subway, um, I look up and I see everyone on their phones and I feel like we're in the matrix. When my friends and I go out to dinner, we'll sometimes go, phones down. As soon as we're seated, the phones go down. And whoever accidentally picks up the phone first has to pay the tab for everyone. <laughs> Man, it is like a totally effective way. <laughs> I'm a little worried about that one, actually, to be honest. Uh, I don't know if I want to do that. It says it's a really effective way of getting people off their phones. Okay, now, the last little piece here, I I had, this was fun too. Now, this one is called Four Politeness Improving Technologies We Wished Existed. The first, now, some of us have been to uh, public environments where someone will have, someone will have a big, iPad and, and, and all of a sudden when the time comes, the moment comes, people will stand up and just this, right? So this this four politeness improving technologies we wish existed, one of them is called a tablet camera disabler. And essentially what it does is it's fe- a feature that prevents people from using a tablet as a view-blocking camera in public events. So what happens is all of a sudden a line goes through it when it gets lifted up in front of everybody else. A tablet-blocking blo- Inhibitor. All right, smartphone shorthand translator. Another cool one. Another way of improving these politeness-improving technologies. You know, a smartphone shorthand translator. It translates emoji and instant message abbreviations into complete sentences for us. <laughs> so when some, someone sends us, says like this, they'll send it. Okay, here's one. I C Y M I. In case you missed it. I-C-Y-M-I, There's a couple holding hands. There's a broken heart. There's a girl with scissors in her hair. There's an emoji with an airplane, a French flag, and praying hands with a halo around them. Here's what it means if this shorthand smartphone translator existed. In case you missed it, I broke up with my boyfriend, cut my hair, moved to France, and I joined a nunnery. Okay. (laughs) All right, my two favorite ones. Here we go. We'll finish with this. The spoiler revenge sprevengerator or whatever you say whenever friends inconsiderately post a spoiler on social media instantaneously a spoiler of equal magnitude will <laughs> auto- automatically appear in their news feeds as a means of equaling it out and the last one humble brag neutralizer app <laughs> Takes friends' Facebook and Instagram photos of all sunsets, fancy shoes, decadent brunches and selfies, and turns them into scenes of misery. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was great. The fact of the matter is, you know, we're talking about this particular service that we're going to get into. And let me explain how we're going to do it. We want to talk about life life apps. We also want to talk about the platform. And um, we're going to do the service a little bit different than we normally do. We're going to customarily do. I'm going to have a time where we share briefly around a uh, portion of Scripture. Actually, it's an exchange that Jesus had, a couple of them. And then at the end of that, we're going to be hearing uh, from uh, someone, share who, who's kind of doing this series in tandem with me. We actually have created a video piece that we're going to be doing. it, And this is going to be part of the Life Apps approach that will connect into what was just shared as a, we- a means of bringing into a more practical workplace or just overall general sense that... What we are exploring has real practical outlays to it. The person who's going to be sharing is, is someone, some of us aren't familiar with Rusty Roof, who's been part of our church for a number of years. He and his wife have been serving in um, children's ministry now for over a decade. But Rusty actually just had something happen to him. It was pretty cool. He just got named to the Presidential Advisory Committee on the Arts, which is a pretty cool thing. He's been the Board of Trustees at ACT Theater. He has been the chairman of the Grammy Foundation and also... He has and he is serving presently as the corporate director at Glassdoor.com and has a blog called Purposed Working, which is .com, which you can, you can check, anybody can subscribe to. And it really has to do with living out our faith in the workplace. And it has a lot to do with technology and work. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to make this very applicable to our real lives. So I'm going to share the teaching and then we'll hear a little bit there and then we'll have our time of giving and close out. But let me go ahead and pray. I ask God to just bless what we're about to do together. And so, Lord, I, I want to ask you to just be with us right now. Um, We're here in your house. We're we're making an investment of sorts and a desire to honor you. But also we're saying um, that we want to be open to the things that you want to encourage us towards and the things that you want to enlarge in us. And so I just want to ask for your blessing. I want to ask for your blessing over this time. And I pray that you would be honored in it and that you would establish some things inside of us or at least get them moving in the right direction. This is what I ask. I ask this. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. God. So... uh, Have you ever been in your life in a storm? Um, I don't mean like a natural storm. We all have those. Weather changes all the time. I'm talking about a stormy place in life. It's quite possible that some of us are in, in that place right now. I'm talking about it as a metaphor for when things are really hard. When things are breaking down. When we find ourselves having a number of things going in the wrong direction, or at least a couple of things that are making it really difficult, we feel under a tremendous amount of pressure. Some of us may, when we're in these stormy places in life, we may feel like we're not going to make it. When storms hit, it's very dark. When storms hit, some of the times the things that we've been counting on start to crumble and they make us very insecure. So storms may look like things with our health, they may have to do with external things, you know, that we can't control. Something's happening in our job. It might have to do with things that are going on with our finances. It might have to do with relationships. We might be in that place right now. I mean, this is the amazing thing about human beings. We can wear certain types of demeanors that, unless people know us really well or are very int- intimate with our life, they wouldn't know. We could sit next to them We have no idea what we're walking under. I mean, there are, we're, we're around a, a, a group of people together here, and, and, and many of us are hurting. We came in with storms in our lives, or we have people who we love who are experiencing them, and it is affecting us. Sometimes the things that are hardest are the things that aren't even external, they're internal. Some of us are struggling with, if people knew it, or struggling with addictive behavior. We're having a really hard time not wanting to go back into things that we know won't help us. They can create personal storms. Again, just thinking about sometimes when we're under an enormous amount of pressure, we feel tremendously stressed. Some of us might even feel emotionally paralyzed, like we're almost not feeling much anymore. Or we're very tired, and we're tired a lot. These stormy places have everything to do with what we're talking about because they have to do with foundations, platforms. And Jesus actually had something to say about it. And this is in your handout. I would like you to sort of follow with me if you could. This is in Matthew 7. And um, this is something Jesus had to say. And he was talking about foundations and storms and the storms of life. And again, one of the things God wants to teach us is how to have a life of faith with him that is capable of enduring things that are hard And when everything in us may even want to quit, give up, it may be part of us is feeling like we're falling apart from the inside out. The Lord has something to say to us. Therefore, he says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and important and does them, I will liken this person to a wise man who built their house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house. They felt beaten. If ever felt like things were coming apart. In that place, Jesus says, it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. It was built on something solid that could endure even though the elements were, were just coming at it in every direction. And then Jesus contrasted that with something. He says, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine, but then doesn't do them, I'm going to say that that person is like a foolish man who built his house on, on the sand. And, and, and the rain descended and the flood started to come and the winds blew and it beat on that house. But that house fell and he got everybody's attention. And he says, and it was a great fall. It collapsed under the weight. It couldn't make it. He says, foundations matter. What we build on matters. And it really shows up in stormy weather. And in the storms of life, I know some of us are younger. We may say, "Well, I haven't really experienced a lot." We we live long enough; we'll experience storms. Some of us that's that was our youth. We we've, we've already know what that's like. We walk with it. But some of again, there's a lot of times where things are going great. The weather's great. Everything's moving in the right direction, or at least it's not bad. And all of a sudden, something hits us. And when it hits with the compounding force, it, can, it can, even the strongest among us can be rocked. I'm going to tell you that right now. Jesus said it matters what we build on. Our platform matters. Now he had this, there was this one moment where Jesus was talking and he he had this great conversation about the platform of life. He didn't call it that, but that's what we will call it. And a man had asked him a question. And the question, as he interacted with Jesus, helps us to understand what matters most as a building place, what we can build our life on. And so I want us to have us look at one of the great exchanges that are recorded that took place between Jesus and another person. It really has a lot to say to us. So look with me at Mark 12, and we'll look at verse 28. It says, It says, And one of the scribes came, and just kind of, let's follow along here, because now we're getting to the heart of this. One of the scribes came. Now a scribe, a lot of people will read it. When we start reading through the Bible, you'll see in the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what, what, this This description, this person, these people, these scribes are called, referred to a lot, a scribe is basically a lawyer, but not just a lawyer, like we think of a lawyer today. A scribe in Jesus' day was a religious lawyer, because the, the the way in which sort of society was constructed at that time was built around principles of the Mosaic Law. And so a scribe would have been someone who had tremendous knowledge of the rules, nuances, regulations of the Law of Moses. He was a lawyer, but a religious special, specialized lawyer. And we also know that just like today, there were two predominant political parties. In their day, they were religious parties. Again, it's important to remember that in, when Jesus is alive, that Israel is not autonomous. They are actually ruled, as most of the known world was at that time in, in Europe and Asia and parts of Africa as well. It was ruled by the, Roman, the Romans who had with a significant weight of military force got what we refer to as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Well, we know that the Jewish people despised being under the Roman overlords. And that was a big part of even Jesus' group. He had a couple of disciples who had been kind of revolutionaries. And they didn't—they didn't, everybody was upset with Rome and they didn't want to submit, but they had to. And they, they had to pay taxes to Caesar and they had to have Roman you know, tributes given and they had to make way for the Romans. And it was, it was, it was humiliating. And um, it was always in there, in their conversation. Well, Rome, on the other hand, didn't want rebellion. It cost them more to put down a rebellion, so they tried to give different people groups different levels of autonomy. They had given Israel at the time a degree of autonomy that was somewhat unique. They, they allowed them to have a lot of self-governance as long as they kept to certain criteria. The, the two-party system, like we have a two part, predominantly two-party system politically, they had one as well. There were two groups, Sadducees and the Pharisees. The scribes, these religious lawyers, were more aligned with the Pharisees, who were the more conservative of the two groups. I'm just going to say, the Sadducees, as they're called, they were were a little bit more powerful. They were a little bit more wealthy. They were men also of intellectual heft. They had um, predominantly a more urban kind of locale. They didn't really have the same kind of sacred regard for the scriptures that the Pharisees and the scribes would have had. In that sense, Jesus was actually more in alignment with the Pharisees and the scribes than he would have been with the Sadducees. Which, which represented kind of the more liberal wing. Now, I say that because the scribe here, look at that, how it opens up. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning, who is them? If you go back, you'll see that the them had to do with an exchange that occurs between Jesus and some of the Sadducee leaders, who are some of the most powerful men in Jerusalem. And they have this discussion, it's based around something that you and I might not think much of, but at the time it was one of the religious hot butt issues of the day. They had a discussion around um, the issue of resurrection and, and what happens if a person, when they die, which actually still is an interesting discussion. And they were going back and forth with Jesus. The Sadducees didn't believe anything happened. Jesus said, there is a resurrection. This is not the end. And they had this discussion. A scribe who would have been more in Jesus' camp was listening and watching it take place. And he was very impressed with the way Jesus had dealt with that. For not only did Jesus sort of kind of give them a, a, a kind of rebuttal. He gave them a stoutly woven rebuke. And he was impressed. And this man of the letters himself was even hearing people say that Jesus. Some people would even say, oh, he might even, he's the Messiah. So he had a question for him. And that sets this all up. Because what he does is he's, he makes this... It, he comes up and he says, Look, I would like to ask you a question. And in this case, the question wasn't designed to catch Jesus or to box him in. There were times where people would ask Jesus... They would ask him questions to try to, like, put him in a position to sort of become vulnerable and exposed. That didn't work too well. But in this, I'll tell you, this guy, he was, he was sincere. We don't know his name. He's just called a scribe. He's an unnamed scribe. But his question... Oh, man, it is so good because it allows us to wrestle with what is the supreme issue of life. It really is something that leads us into the discussion of what is the real platform on which life should be built. And he says, listen, I have a question for you. He says, which is, which is, look at it, you can see it there in verse 28. What is the first commandment of all? I would like to get your opinion on what is the supreme duty of a human being. Now, many people in that time had opinions, teachers did, rabbis did. But it was like he was saying, look, I, re- I want to, but where do you, it, the question is more about a general answer. He's basically saying, where do you put the accent? But even more than that, if you were to distill the law down to its core essence, what would you say it is? What is the greatest thing we can do as human beings? And he said this in front of everybody. And Jesus gave him an answer that, that it says this, verse 29. He says, Jesus answered and he said, look, the first of all the commandments is, the, the, the greatest of all the commandments is this. And then Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first and greatest thing a person can ever do. And it was, it was really important because what Jesus was sort of getting into. And he was, he was, he was basically responding to this question of, well, what is the, the ultimate purpose and meaning of life? And the answer that Jesus gives is what we would call the Shema. What is often referred to by the Jewish people as the Shema. Because the Shema has to do with the, it, in its verb, as a verb, a Hebrew verb, to hear. All right? And so the opening line is, hear, O Israel. Not like hear, but listen, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the shema, the hearing. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the greatest commandment. This is what Jesus says. And, and, of course, what he was getting at was, look, God desires us to love him in a way that is tender, in a way that is committed, in a way that is sincere, in a way that is intentionally thoughtful and utterly devoted. He is reminding all of us of the first duty of every man and every woman is to acknowledge God, to truly acknowledge Him, and to love Him, and to love Him, truly love Him. Now, that would have been challenging enough because if you really think about it, what does that mean? What does that mean to really love God? I mean, we can contemplate it. We could take a walk and spend a day thinking, well, what, did, what, did, what does that really look like to love God and to be open to His love in my life? And Jesus could have stopped right there he said, that's it. Nothing more. But he said, but there's one more thing. And he coupled something onto it. Like he locked it right in. He says, and there's a second. The second is like unto this. And now he quotes from what would be another book in the Older Testament that they would have all been familiar with, those who had knowledge of it, from Leviticus 19. And look what he says. He says, in the second, verse 31, and the second is like it. It is this. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment that is greater than these two, than this. Now, to the Jewish mind at the time, a majority of what had been interpreted as the neighbor meant it had a very narrow scope. It meant my fellow Jew. And Jesus knew that. That is my neighbor, and that's the one I am to love. And in fact, a lot of people we're saying we are not responsible to love the Gentiles and we are certainly not responsible to love the, the non the, the the Romans. We despise them. And that was understood. And there were other tensions as well. Ethnic. You read this, when you start reading it, you'll see that there were tensions that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans at the time. Samaritans were partly Jewish people, had developed a kind of hybrid expression. There was tremendous ethnic and even subtle religious tension between the two of them. And to the extent that a lot of Jews, Jewish people of the day, and it went both directions, but a lot of, they wouldn't even go through Samaria. It would bypass and take a longer route just to avoid the interactions. There was real tension there. Remember, Jesus has this interaction with a woman at the well, as she's called. And she says, What are you doing talking to me? People like us don't talk. And Jesus talks to her about the water, that if she will drink it, she'll never thirst again. It's a beautiful moment. But Jesus had another person ask him a question because it was connected, because he, he the person, one person asked him a question, said, Well, who really is my neighbor? Who am I truly responsible to love? And Jesus, on the basis of that question, gave one of his great parables. That's what initiates the parable of the Good Samaritan, in which all of it has to do with my neighbor being a lot bigger than just the people I like. And so this is something, that, as the scribe is listening to this, he's, he's intrigued, and he goes, and watch the passion that comes out. The scribe says to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. No, there is only one God. There is only one God, and there is no other than he. And, and yes, to love him, look at that, with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and, and to love one's neighbor as yourself. Yes, yes, there is nothing more, no, nothing more than this. No, fact, it is more than all, all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now that was, for us, we go, oh yeah, but that was a big deal for him. What he was saying was all the things of the temple that we do, all the sacrifices, all the rules, all the, all the rituals that we do that are embedded in the law of Moses. The greater than all of those things is what you just said. And he was excited. He agreed with Jesus. And you know what? Jesus got excited back. Look what he says. He says, now when Jesus saw that the, the man answered wisely, he said to him, you, my friend, are not far from the kingdom of God. You are are right there. It was a great statement, right? He's almost like he's saying, look, you are are so close. Your heart is open. Um, Cultivate that. Stay there. And it will lead you to me Like like a lighthouse on the shore. You're right there. The kingdom is before your very eyes. Your heart is open. And then it says no one asked him any more questions because it's like we've had enough asking him questions to try to catch him. Here's what I want us to think about. Here's how I'd like us to pull it in. We'll just, put this, up. We're just going to put this up real quick to sort of s- to summarize what that platform looks like, just for those, especially when we take our notes. Let me suggest this. Loving God, according to Jesus, is the greatest thing we can ever do in this life, ever. By the way, that presupposes something, doesn't it? Loving God is the greatest thing we can do, but what it presupposes is that we believe there is a God. Hebrews 11.6 says this. For without faith, it is impossible. Hebrews 11:6. it is impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that he is, he exists. And that he can be known, his no ability, his reality and his no ability. That he is a rewarder of those who would diligently seek after him. Jesus said, look, it doesn't take a lot of faith. It, it could even be imperfect faith. It could be the faith the size of a mustard seed. But it, it takes faith. But when you open up your heart... Something happens. And Jesus took it even further. He says, not only must we believe in God, because before we can love him, we have to believe in God. Yes, but, we, but Jesus, this is where the difference line drew, was drawn. Jesus said, but it's more than that. It's more than that. You must believe in me. Remember, we talked about this last week when we were talking about Nicodemus, the Pharisee, struggling with Jesus to understand and to grasp what he meant by being born again. And when Jesus says this, Verse that we all, or at least most of us, recognize. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's talking about himself. That whoever would believe in him would not perish. That death would not be the final word, but life would be. That would not perish, but have life everlasting. I like to say it, life overflowing, life abundant. The undying life of God in us, both now and yet to be. Not only, Jesus said, not only though it has to do with believing that there's a God, not only does it have to do with believing in me, but he says, look, if you believe in me, then you're actually going to need to do what I say. That's the platform. John 14, 21 says this later on. He would say these words. He that has, the person who has my commands and keeps them. Look how that connects back to Matthew 7. The person who has my words and keeps them. This is the person who loves me. It's almost like Jesus said, do not say. And if you love me, my Father will reveal himself to you. I will show myself to you. We will be in a relationship together. But it's almost like Jesus was saying, don't think that what I really want is just compliance. What I want is your heart. And, and, and it, it's, almost, it's almost like the Lord is saying, that if you say you love me, why do you say you love me? And he would quote this from Isaiah, but you don't do what I say. And Jesus says, if we love, that's why I said we got to read what he says then. And think about it a lot and pray about it. Let it become part of who we are. But the second part of that is this. Because that's the foundational piece. That's the most important piece, obviously, right? That's, That's the piece that life, the first piece that life is to be built on. But the other part of that platform is connected to it, isn't it? And it's a reminder that we are to also love others. And loving God, and here it is, loving God and loving people are intertwined. To say we love God. And I've heard a few people say, you know, I love God. I can't stand people, but I love God. (laughs) And they were kind of joking. But seriously, to say we love God and then not to have that show up in our relationships. Disconnect. Disconnect. It's got to show up. Jesus told us, said it has to be. Part of loving God means that we're going to love people. Even people. We're going to struggle with it sometimes. But even people we don't like. Matthew, he said in Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before people, before men, that they may see your good works, the goodness of your life. A life characterized by goodness. And then glorify God who is in heaven, the Father. The idea is that we are to live life in a way that invites people to see God working in our lives. So how we treat people matters. How we love people matters. And that means we're going to have to challenge ourselves in our, in the way in which we love. And I, I, I know that it's possible um, because, right, I mean, to... Uh, to only love people and then I want to say this it's clearly a disconnect to say I love God but I really don't care about how I'm coming across to people and I don't really love the people in my life that well that's a disconnect but it's equally listen it's equally a disconnect to say well I just love people but I don't really think that much about God and it's possible to to be loving and kind to people I suppose and good as we define it and not really have anything to do with God but I'm going to tell you this that good is a disconnected good Because what it ignores is it ignores the very origin from which that capacity came from. It's like it's cutting itself off from its root. So that my goodness, if it's only my goodness and it's not connected to God, it's almost like the very one who gave me the ability to love, I'm ignoring and throwing out of the equation. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't do that. Because there's only one truly good. So here's the deal. How is this supposed to show up in our lives? I just want to put these questions, and these are just questions that we'll just, just for us to probe more deeply in. I'm going to quickly move through them. We'll post them up on Monday. But here they are to wrestle with just a tad more. Based on what Jesus taught us, what then does it mean to truly love God? How would this show up in our everyday life, you guys? How's it going to show up? I mean, when we say we love God, well, what does that mean practically speaking? How's it going to affect how we treat people, what we speak, how we speak, what we put in? What's that going to mean? What does it mean? What does it mean, secondly, to love people... What was Jesus getting at when he told us to love our neighbor? And when it comes to loving people, just stay with me on this one. When it comes to loving people, what do we find comes most easy? And what is actually kind of hard? And, and we feel like if we're being honest, God wants us to work on improve, helping us improve this. Because there's some of us, we, we, have, we have trigger points. Like, I can love someone really well, but then this happens. I just drop into another person. Right? Or like some of us were different some of us we're really good on loving people who are a little bit further away from us but when it comes to our interpersonal relationships the closer we get the harder it is to be loving some of us have a real hard time with vulnerability because we've been hurt so we'll love from afar others of us are really good living clo- loving close but really our world is so small that it's almost like what he was talking about we have a very narrow view of a neighbor see the Lord and then there are other kind of reactive patterns that we have God wants to get at those things God's trying to grow us that's the thing the key is our platform though okay and that number three then what was the platform Jesus taught us to build a successful life on and how are we doing in terms of our focus and prioritization what I mean by that is if we say this is what's most important I agree with Jesus on the platform if we say that But then we look at our life and all of our priorities, our time predominant, time investment, the way we're spending this limited gift we call life is basically going in the opposite direction or is not in alignment. What happens is we may say, this is what I think is the most important thing. This is what Jesus said was the most, the key to true success. He taught, love God, love people. But then my life is going in a very different direction as a priority. What does that say? The Lord will call us to places of alignment. This is a great time to think about that. The more aligned we become with what Jesus says is important, the more we become a success in the eyes of God and a blessing to people. Lastly, on that note, what practical ways, because this is always about practical stuff in my mind, can we align our lives better with what Jesus taught us was the greatest opportunity and calling of life? Stay with me on this. That's why we're getting into the Bible readings. We thought, okay, what can we do? One thing we can do is say, let's commit ourselves to a little six-month easy reading plan. Read through the scriptures. Read His words. Read the New Testament. Let's sit with it, commit to it. Some of us, this might be the time when God's calling some of us to get a part of, become part of a small group. I know we're busy, but you know what? We invest in, with people who are moving in the same direction. We train together. It's like we're rowing, or on a ship. Fellowship. We're rowing together, right? And and sometimes I can't row. I I got nothing in me, but another person might. It's why it's better not to be, it's better to be in something with a few people than just all by myself. It's just wise. We provoke one another to good works. Some of us, it might be a time to get more involved. Some of us might be a time time to to be more courageous at work about our love for him. We say we love him. Do we ever talk about him? Some of us, it might be time for us to actually start getting out there a little bit more in our social world and declare our love for him with all the risks that are involved in that. So here's what we're going to do, as I mentioned. We're going to show that little video piece that connects to the workplace and to, to what we've been sharing from the scriptures. We'll show the piece, have a brief time of giving, and a final song that we're going to share together.
1: We stand on the stage of one of the great theaters of San Francisco. This theater was actually built just after the 1906 earthquake, and it stood the test of time, including the 1989 earthquake. But that's not actually why we're here. We're here because a theater is a great metaphor for understanding the difference between a platform and an application, or what we're calling an app. You see, this stage is like a platform. It's the foundation of a theater that all else is built upon. And without the stage, there wouldn't be a place for actors to practice their craft, nor a place for the sets or the props to be placed and to be used. You see, the stage, it carries all the weight. The stage can be counted on. The stage doesn't go away. The stage is the platform for a theater. All the rest, well, they can be considered the applications. You see, the sets change, the scenes change, the actors change, the costumes change, the lights change, the plays or the musicals, they change often. With the sets, the costumes, the makeup, we can create whatever we desire. Pastor Terry described our life platform and how our faith becomes the one constant and truly sustainable part of our life. But how do we live this platform out throughout all of our life? And what about the things in our life that are part of every day that aren't built upon the right platform, that then become a problem and a conflict? Well, we have to consider those things as applications too, that we must be sure are built upon a firm, strong, and consistent platform. Things like our occupation, our job, our friends, our relationships, our interests, our hobbies, our politics, our education, our geography, our fashions, our finances, our health, our emotions, and even our age. Yes, it changes every day, as does and will our physical appearance. You see, all these come and go. They're like the apps on our phone or on our tablets. They're here today, needing an update tomorrow, or maybe even gone tomorrow. But our platform, no, it doesn't come and go. It stays. It stands the test of time and change. It bears all the weight of the apps that are built for it. The platform, we can depend upon. The apps. While seemingly so important at the time, they get installed and removed and are only as good as the platform underneath them. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take the next few weeks and go deeper into the ways we can extend our life platform into many life apps. So that we can learn to make the right choices, to live our lives fully as God has desired for us to do. We're gonna explore how our platform can sustain and strengthen each of our life apps taking them with us each week, into the world, outside of the church walls, to our workplaces and our homes. But for now, let's remember this. We must actively accept and build our life platform upon God's platform. And then, build our life apps on top of this, and this only.